Hello everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. Network security threats are a growing problem. As the security threats facing computer networks are becoming more sophisticated technologically and getting harder to detect, the consequences of failing to manage the cybersecurity risk or block cyber attacks are getting big and increasing rapidly. Each nation, its government, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals, in short referred to as NGIOAI, not only have to pay careful attention to the threats facing their computers and networks, but also be proactive in understanding the risk their computer network brings. In addition, it is important to keep an eye on the emerging technology innovations that would add complexity to the already complex cybersecurity risk and already vulnerable digital cyber networks. Entities of all sizes across NGIOA are suffering consequences from network security breaches. And if 2016 is any indication, the risk of cybersecurity breach is getting complex, growing and changing rapidly. To discuss this, I'm delighted to welcome Amrit Williams de Paulo. Amrit is the Chief Technology Officer at Cloud Passage. Uh, welcome, Amrit. We are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. So, let me begin by asking you a very fundamental question. In terms of you know technology, in terms of you know information uh, communication and cybersecurity and cyberspace, what is an attack on a computer network? How would you describe that? A computer network? Yes. Well, to describe a computer network, it's a, a set of interconnected computing devices that share and transfer information. Um, we've been using these interconnected devices for quite some time. And one big transformative change that's occurring right now is we've gone from the era of mainframes back in the 50s, 60s, and then that started to trail off in the 70s, and then in the 80s we had the introduction of what's called that second major platform, which is the client-server PCs. And now we're experiencing computing, cloud computing and mobile computing devices. So we've gone from hundreds of applications and hundreds of people interconnecting and using these things, mostly in academia. Then we had that big transformation of the internet and all that occurred in the, the last part of the decade. And now we're experiencing of applications, billions and billions of users, billions of billions of interconnected devices, all of them communicating throughout the entire world, bringing us to sort of a global information exchange. Right, right. No, that is a good background, and you are right. I mean, it is increasing in numbers, and especially with now Internet of Things, it is getting much more complex and much more bigger. So now, Amrit, based on your observation, how many types of attack do we see on computer networks? Well, billions and billions. You know, when I did antivirus research in the early 90s at McAfee, there was a handful of attacks. Uh, they were limited in, the, in their scope and impact to the point that we could actually dissect them and then write antivirus signatures to find them again. Um, that started to turn into billions and billions of, of different types of viruses, polymorphic viruses, viruses that would re or re um, basically code themselves to try and evade uh, detection. But on top of that, not only did you have the malicious malware and software, you had variants of that. You also had increasingly different types of attack motivation. So back in the early 90s, it was mostly hobby-based malware and cyber vandalism. Then that turned into financially motivated cybercrime. And then now, of course, there's nations and terrorism, all different manner of attacks coming at us. So it's really the order of, of magnitude of increase in the hostile threat impact landscape is, is just overwhelming. Right. I know you're absolutely right. Now, right. Amrit, if, how can any individual or any entity across any industry or nation identify their vulnerabilities and risk on their computer network. How can they go forward with that? Well, the same controls that we've always needed to employ, we still do. A good percentage of attacks still take advantage of things that we have in our control. For example, known vulnerabilities that should be removed, uh, misconfigured systems, poor access control. So there's still a, a large set of compromises that are a result of us not doing the proper security hygiene that we need to do. You couple that with, again, trying to apply legacy tools into transformative IT models, and you get a lot of problems. For example, um, the traditional method of securing a network is to have a network security product and to deploy very large, heavy boxes that have hardware acceleration to handle the throughput of traffic. 
Well, the perimeter starts to break down in the cloud as an example, or dynamic compute environments where you're spinning up resources and then spinning them back down. So that same model doesn't apply. It doesn't work as well. So not only do we still have to do the same proper security hygiene we've already done, which by the way, most patients are just not that good at to begin with, we now have to apply security in a new modern infrastructure that's trying to adopt new methods of IT, of computing, mobile IoT, and things of that nature. I see. I so see. I think most organizations are challenged. Right, I know you're right. Now, how can any individuals or entities pro protect against peer phishing and advanced targeted attacks? You described some of it, but how can they, you know, if you talk about uh, especially spear phishing, how can they, you know, protect themselves from that? Well, I think there's a misconception in security that you can prevent all bad things. You can't. What we need is an acceptable level of risk. There's an acceptable level of risk in banking, as an example. Most people are not afraid of going into a bank, a brick-and-mortar bank, even though they still get robbed. They used to get robbed all the time. People were afraid of keeping money but that's long since passed. Now, they still get robbed, but no one thinks about it. It's an acceptable level of risk, and we don't have that same acceptable level of risk in cyber today, in, in networking and infrastructure. So we have to get to that acceptable level of risk, and I think the way that we do that is we understand it's about being resilient, not about preventing every bad thing from occurring. So the best that we can achieve in security, in most, is to try our best to limit the potential that we can become compromised, or that someone will attack us and be successful in that attack, and when we do, which they will, limit the impact on the organization. So it's really about remaining resilient and being able to maintain business operations in the face of a prolonged denial of service attack, as an example, or prolonged um, attempt to exfiltrate data. Right. No, no, it is a good explanation, and I hear you on that, that it is an acceptable level of risk that we have to uh, get used to. So uh, talking about acceptable level of risk, how would you def uh, define and describe what is network security? Because like, you know, we just talked that many people, many entities, they are, you know, uh, frightened about this, that, you know, there is so much risk and, you know, the, we want to prevent all possible risk and we want, we want to make sure it is completely safe. Is it possible to have completely secured network? Um, well, it depends on what you're using that secure network for. You can air gap a network so that the communications remain internal and don't ever escape the air gapped infrastructure. That is that there is no inbound or outbound traffic from a physical location. But most organizations won't do that. The reason is because the reason that they're adopting IT and new technologies is because it helps the business. Now, as a good example of that, imagine a company like Netflix. So most people are probably familiar with Netflix. Now imagine that Netflix's compute demands on a Friday night are very different than they are at Sunday in the morning. So what that means for Netflix is that they need to be able to access compute resources and spin them up quickly and then spin them back down. And this is the same for many companies, whether they're a pharmaceutical company that's trying to do clinical trials, whether you're a company that is uh, providing tax services and that's seasonality, whether you're an e-commerce company, whether you're B2B, the business is trying to enable itself to be continuously differentiated from its competition by the adoption of IT and by the adoption of new technologies. So we've sort of shifted from a model where security can say, no, that's insecure, we can't do it, to where security has to say, well, if you want to enable these technologies, let me show you how to adopt them securely so that we can meet our risk and compliance uh, initiatives and so that we can ensure that we're protecting our customers' information. Right, I know that's a very good explanation. So, uh, let me just ask you this, how would a network security work if there is any entity getting into a business, let's say, you know, defense or, you know, pharmaceutical industry, how would they go forward with, you know, securing the network? What would be their approach? Well, there's, there's several things that I think need to occur. One thing is regardless of what the industry is or where they're focused, we have to move from this mindset of network perimeter security to start looking at the actual compute resources themselves a little closer. For example, the compute resources you may spin up in a private cloud in a dynamic compute environment or in your own infrastructure on bare metal or if you actually start to adopt and use public cloud infrastructure like Amazon. In all of those cases, you really want to start looking at how can I do micro-segmentation at the workload level. Let me explain what that is. So the way that most organizations do network security, again, is they do network segmentation. They try to create virtual LANs and they have this big, heavy perimeter and they want to block all bad traffic from coming in. 
The problem is once bad traffic enters a network, it starts to move laterally and pivot from one server to another or one workstation to another. And those network security technologies can't protect that level of, of um, attack or that level of, of lateral movement. So when you start looking at tools that can do micro segmentation, you can start protecting the workload at a fine grain control level. So that you may have servers that the only purpose in life is to act as database servers. Well, the only communication those servers should have with anything are database connections, and those should be monitored and throttled. And if you do those type of things at the workload, you're starting to reduce the attack surface that, are, that it's someone can compromise. Also, you're preventing lateral movement. You're basically saying if someone is able to bypass my perimeter security or my network segmentation, make their way into a server, I'm limiting the possibility that they can use that server to compromise a more secure server that has more critical data on it. Right, you know, that's a very good explanation. Now, so if I'm an individual or if I'm an entity, how would I know that I have sufficient network security? Is there a process I need to follow to define, like, what are my, you know, criteria and how much uh, security software tools or technologies I have? And how would I go forward with that to know that if I have sufficient security? What's well, sufficient security is sort of a broad term. I, I think the question is, what is the level of security that we feel leads us to an acceptable level of risk within our business? Because it's different for different entities. Yes. Historically, financial services and government tend to be risk averse, um, even though they do adopt a lot of security and other technologies early in their life cycle. They tend to also be type A. At the same time, you have companies like manufacturing, which don't tend to concern themselves as much with security because they think, hey, who wants to take our stuff? I don't think they always realize that there are compute resources that um, attackers want to take advantage of. So the question really comes down to what's core to our business, and I think people in security need to work with each of the business units and the business leaders themselves. What's critical for you? What is critical data for you? What's critical information for you? What's critical access and service levels? And then implement and layer the security in to protect that line of business differently than you might protect a different line of business. And again, when you start looking at things like network segmentation or micro segmentation at the workload level, you can start looking at application flows and you can make decisions. For example, it's very popular right now. Organizations are looking at things like called DevOps. They want to move to a process where there's almost continuous integration or continuous delivery of application code out to some type of web enabled service. And they want this to happen maybe one or two times a day, whereas before that used to happen maybe every couple of months. So to move to that model, they have to make sure, okay, well, are we seamless in moving code through our dev, test, and then production environment without any of those environments speaking directly to each other and not having enough controls so that stuff that happens in the test environment doesn't make its way into the production environment unless it's supposed to. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of things that people can do to sort of look at that application traffic and then try to determine what is the type of traffic that they consider to be appropriate for those type of communications and lock everything else down? Right, now that's a very good explanation, Amrit. Now, uh, like you said, you know, there are many entities or many industries that do not give much importance about network security. They feel like, what are they going to steal? So now, what, based on your observation so far, what are the more critical security threats uh, that you have seen to any network, individual or any entity? If you talk about broadly, like, you know, these are the securities or these are the network securities that you are, you know, these industries face. Well, I think it depends on the industry. Obviously, there's reputational threat to a business when they have a compromise that results in the loss of their customer data or customer information, regardless of whether they're in financial services, retail or the government. Uh, it's a huge impact and it costs a lot of money to clean those things up and have to deal with the identity theft, um, uh, support issues that these companies have to deal with and buying the identity theft protection, notifications, just generally dealing with the hit to their reputation. I think those right now are huge, especially those that result in financial damage. The other ones that are harder to really understand their impact because they are not as noisy are the ones where intellectual property is stolen, where you have the ability for one um, organization or enterprise in one country to attack and steal the intellectual property of another and to use that to advance their business, whether that's because they may be in a mining industry 
and they're able to attack a, an organization to understand where they're planning to do future mining activities or oil, where they're planning to find more oil. Or it could be, you know, advanced technology. So they want to understand, hey, I've now got blueprints for something that they're planning to build. And they can get a leap start on that. So intellectual property is harder to track, but it's huge. Um, obviously, anything that has to do with the potential impact to critical infrastructure as a nation state attack is very damaging. Uh, we have experienced one at the level like we might if we were to undergo uh, some type of combined terrorist cyber attack or nation state attack on our infrastructure. But it's highly likely that we will. Um, and not the two distant future really to understand how connected everything is and how easy it is for things to be compromised. Right. I know you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, this cyber espionage and cyber uh, criminals, they are after not only ideas and innovations, but, you know, blueprints or, you know, all kinds of data, industry data and uh, trade secrets. Uh, and they are after pretty much everything. And, yeah, critical infrastructure also are at a very critical risk. You know, there is... Uh, uh, very uh, significant level of activities happening. So it, let me ask you this, Amrit, if you are an entity, let's say, you know, critical infrastructure, uh, industry, energy industry, is there a way for them to know that they are under attack or that the attack is happening? Are there technologies available that can be used for, for the, you know, identification of uh, a cyber attack on their networks? right from the network before it you know reaches them is it is there any uh, way to diagnose that or identify that you're under attack before the attack is actually reaching your network most times um usually what you're doing is you're identifying somewhere along the chain of an attack that you have identified a compromise and i think for most organizations if they can identify that they've been compromised before data is actually stolen um, they've actually done a good job because they have prevented and limited the impact of that attack on the organization. Now, the type of tools they may use, uh, intrusion detection scanners, both at the network level that look at traffic coming in or that sit at the host level and they watch traffic there. Um, file integrity monitors, which will look for compromise or, or modifications to files that should not change, which is an indicator of something that's been done wrong. They can use log aggregation and SIM technologies to collect log data to look for strings that are indicative of a compromise or misuse or a policy violation. So there's no single technology here. It's a set of technologies that one can use. Uh, there's technologies that um, they look at something called flow data. Flow data is generated by networks, um, network equipment as well as security equipment, NetFlow from Cisco as an example, or JFlow from Juniper. And you can look at that data, and it's all the metadata about every single network communication sort of the, the equivalent of a phone call without recording the call itself. But you can say who called, who talked to who, how long did it last, what was the type of communication. You can use that to determine, okay, if I have a compromise, where has this compromise gone? Where has the attacker tried to pivot to? Has he actually taken any data? If he has tried to exfiltrate data, where, where, where was he located? What other machines has he talked to? So you get a picture about what he was doing when he was in your network. A lot of this really is about organizations moving from trying to prevent everything from happening bad to accepting that bad things might happen and doing more incident response and network forensics. I see. No, I, I hear you on that. Now, based on your experience, Amrit, what are your observations of common vulnerabilities that you see entities' experiences across nations and its industries? What is my, I'm sorry, I missed the last part of the question. What are your observations of common vulnerabilities, security, network security vulnerabilities that you see entities' experiences across industries and nations? Yeah, it's the same, you know, the, the, the network protocols are the same wherever you are. They're not different in India or China. So if you're using SMTP, you're using SMTP. Um, so the problem is that most organizations or again, my observation, and this continues, are still very bad at doing the basic things. They still are very slow to update patches when patches need to be updated. They're very slow to identify which systems have misconfigurations, hardening guidelines, like if you're going to put up a Linux Red Hat server running Postgres, it should be hardened and configured this way. Um, there's just still an incredible amount of sluggishness across the board. And it's unfortunate. Everyone thinks that these attackers are incredibly sophisticated. 
They are, but the reality is there's so much things that they can take advantage of that's very simple for most people to take advantage of these days. So my biggest observation is just we're still not doing the basic security hygiene that we need to do. Right, right. Now the basic fundamentals are not there. I hear you on that. Now it is said that no network is safe without a proper security solution in place. Are entities across nations and industries effective in securing their networks? I mean, you just said that you know they don't. Uh, a lot of them, you know, don't have the basic fundamental uh, security. So, uh, which industries you see are is not more prepared when it comes to you know securing the networks? Well, I think there's a lot. Think about this. The, the security industry is, I think, going to be $85 billion next year. That's a lot of money yes. being spent on securing infrastructure that, for the most part, everybody is still being attacked on a fairly regular basis. Every time you open the paper these days, there's and the mainstream media will say, now X has been attacked, now they've been compromised. There is no... There is really no organization that can stand up and say, I'm secure and, and I can prevent all attacks, unless they're just not online at all. Uh, maybe a library with no computers, but even then they could be physically attacked. So the reality is that they have to understand that if you're going to use technology and you're going to be part of this global world uh, and you're, in, you're, in, you're digitally connected, you have to prepare for security. And the biggest challenge, I think, again, is not just the sloppiness I mentioned earlier, it's that some of the fundamental technologies, the underlying technologies like DNS, as an example, like the use of, of things like OpenSSL, they, those have fundamental flaws. And when those have flaws, you affect everyone that uses them. So there's still fundamental flaws to the internet itself, the protocols used on the internet. There's the organization trying to bolt all the security on top of these flaws. And while that's happening, the business is trying to adopt and, and deploy a whole new set of new technologies. And of course, the threat landscape is really increasingly hostile right now. Right, right. No, I hear you on that. Now, you, you know that uh, with the new approach that corporations have taken that, you know, bring your own device with employees, many entities across nations already have some type of policy governing employee use of the internet, email, Facebook, and other social media. While this is a good start that they have some basic fundamental policies, it is not enough. What do you advise entities to update their policies to address their evolving security risk? Well, I, I think there's a, couple, there's a couple different things there. One is, you're right, there's a lot of organizations that are saying if you're at work, you can't use Facebook or social media or use these other SaaS things like Box unless it's approved. Or if you bring a device, it has to be one that's approved by the corporation. The challenge with that is that we have a whole brand new set of millennials. And this new generation is used to having quick access to tools that are fundamentally online. Collaborating through technologies like Slack, which is an online uh, communication tool versus doing email. They're used to getting code and submitting it in GitHub versus you know, a version control system that sits in a server inside of a data center. They're used to having rapid conversations with their friends via social media and other people that they network and work with. So when you start to restrict that, you start to move back to the, that sort of the draconian um, security team saying no to things. I think that's to break down with mobile. As soon as the CEO walked in with a new iPhone and said, I need this to connect to corporate resources, well, the security teams had to support that. So I think a better approach is, again, not for the security teams to say, no, we can't do that, but to look for, okay, if this does make our folks uh, more productive, does create a better work environment for them, and it's not something where they're actually stealing our time as a company, we should enable them to do it. Social media is a little bit different because you know, there really is not a lot of reasons you should be on Facebook in the middle of the day if you're supposed to work. Um, but there's a lot of other SaaS technologies or online technologies that I think, especially the younger generation, is very accustomed to that blocking those and saying you can't use those because they're insecure is going to cause a lot of pushback. I see. No, I hear you on that. Now, uh, one question I wish, you know, there is some, you know, response uh, from industries on that. And if you can share some light that, that when you when corporations or organizations develop policies for their you know security that you know network uh, what are the different uh, uh, criteria they impose on the employees or the contractors uh, should do you think should entities 
across nations develop the policies in collaborations with insurance companies? Because there are huge security risks and uh, there is a huge liability also. So are insurance companies involved in you know, defining the policies that any organization has for the you know, network security or computer security? That's an interesting question. I don't think organizations have policies just in collaboration with insurance companies. I think what they need to do is define policies in collaboration with the business leaders and the business units. Um, they need board and senior management to understand what policies they want to implement. And their policies should be driven by not only how to better implement security, but also by their compliance initiatives. So you may have a compliance initiative, depending on your organization, like PCI or HIPAA, uh, SOC 2, if you're going to become publicly traded or all, um, you may have some requirement to show your customers an SSAE 16 report. If you're dealing with the federal government and cloud, you may have to be FedRAMP compliant. So those all have a prescriptive set of controls that they want to see implemented. Those need to be understood and weighed against the needs of the business. Um, and I think all those wrapped up together will probably drive an insurance organization to accept that as an acceptable um, level. I'm not aware of any insurance organizations that I've worked with or companies I, I've worked with have worked with that have said you must implement these security controls. Yeah, I think it's uh, still in a very preliminary stage, but I uh, most certainly see a need for doing that because, you know, insurance industry will have to play a very critical role in managing the security risk and, you know, making sure that proper risk management security controls are in place and, you know, proper procedures are in place. And I think uh, uh, that would require that insurance industry work with the organizations in defining the policies, in defining the terms and uh, different criteria and how, you know, the security controls and risk management uh, is uh, uh, executed across, you know, corporations. So we will have to see. I think it's too preliminary to uh, talk about that, but it should be happening if we want to have a very effective security uh, risk management uh, in place across the states and nations. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see how insurance industry, uh, you know, comes up with a different process for that. But based on your experience, what are the types of situations you see contributing to the major security breaches that we see across, you know, industries, if you see Target or if you see, you know, uh, other major uh, news that we have seen in uh, 2015. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. There's definitely the, uh, there's definitely the very real, highly motivated attacker that's getting in, but I think a lot of times that highly motivated attacker is still taking advantage of something that, Fundamentally, we should be able to protect against. Um, and I think, again, that's, that's really the, the main problem and issue I see with the security industry today is we've got a bunch of shiny object tools. It's a huge plus billion dollar industry. Uh, it has widespread media attention and has for quite some time. Um, a lot of fear and uncertainty about what could actually happen if we had uh, you know, nation state cyber attacks. And yet, we don't we don't, as, uh, as a country, at least here in the U.S., we coordinate very across industries with public and both private sector. Um, we're not very good at tying all these technologies together and really including the, the process and the people component of that. We tend to over-focus on yesterday's problem and not worry about tomorrow's problem, i.e. the adoption of things like cloud and mobile. Um, and I think security hygiene that we've had to do for so long is still not being done, right? I mean, there was a breach of um, healthcare that was a result of them not encrypting their healthcare data. Well, I mean, it's, it was 2015. Why in the world would they not be encrypting patient data? Under percent. Um, or you have organizations that have weak passwords or they have um, publicly known vulnerabilities that have been there for a while and they just... They don't, they're not updating them. They're not doing anything to protect themselves. So a lot of it is still, you know, the result of the organizations themselves not, not doing what they should be doing. Yes. No, there, these are all major challenges. And, you know, there is no uh, desire on part of organization to 
manage the security risk in an effective manner. They feel that there are no incentives, and they so a lot of organizations feel that you know let's just buy cyber security policy, and uh, we are done. We don't have to focus more than that so that is uh, uh, itself in a very critical risk and uh, that's why it is very important that you know insurance industry uh, works uh, in a integrated fashion with the organizations to ensure they need to be enforcers and ensurers of proper risk management and proper security you know control so i hope that happens and there is a need for that so we'll uh, you know move forward and uh, hope that you know they uh, I'm going to have a dialogue with insurance industry executives too, and I will uh, we'll see you know what they have to say about how this should be structured in the coming months and years. So uh, we'll uh, you know go there, and that uh, uh, will be a good discussion to have. But we, there are people who say I am safe. My information is in the cloud. I don't need to worry. Are they safe? If their information and data they 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 think are critical to them. They are, they are they safe? No. no, they're not. Now, it's true that um, the cloud computing providers, both the SaaS providers as well as the infrastructure as a service providers, take security very seriously. And I would say they're probably better at securing infrastructure than some of the organizations that use them or leverage their services. So, but the reality is that, as an example, the cloud computing providers, they have what's called a shared responsibility model where it's a collab security is a collaboration between the organization and the provider. The provider will secure pretty much up to the hypervisor level, but the actual virtualized server instance itself, where the data is residing and how it's being accessed and all of that, is the responsibility of the organization. So if the organization doesn't know how to secure in the first place, just moving to the cloud doesn't make them secure. It may add them some benefits to securing the infrastructure, but it doesn't inherently make them more secure. Uh, same thing with SaaS providers. Generally, SaaS providers, especially ones that have critical information that's stored, uh, whether that's healthcare, personnel record data, uh, CRM data, or they're a security company that offers a SaaS technology, they take security very seriously. Better at security than many of the folks that use technology and services. But that doesn't inherently mean that these guys are safe. It just means that the security technologies being employed by these services are probably better than what they're using they're still susceptible to an attack. They're still susceptible to something bad happening. So there has to be some caution in a statement of, well, I'm using cloud technology, so I'm secure. Yeah, most organizations, I think, are starting to believe that cloud providers actually have better security than what they're doing. But they also have to understand that that doesn't mean that they're off the hook and that they don't have to continue looking for ways that they need to secure their own environments, their server environments that are spun up in that, in that infrastructure, as an example. Right, I know you have said it right now. What are the key challenges that network security executives like you face today? And you feel that you'll be facing that in the coming years? Well, there's a couple. Um, one big, really huge challenge right now is that there's a huge lack of talent. Um, I know that the federal government is trying to hire, I don't know what the number is, almost 100,000 cybersecurity professionals. Um, the private sector is trying to find these folks too. They're, they're highly in demand and they're hard to find the folks who've got a lot of experience. So what you have is a lot of people that have, you know, two years of experience, don't really understand the history. Uh, they may have some certifications, but they haven't been in, in the industry fighting these battles for a long time. So the, the universe of people that are qualified uh, to, to really do advanced security um, they're just not there. So we've got a problem with personnel. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough institutions incentivizing people to go into this industry, which is too bad because now they're getting paid a lot. Um, we don't have enough programs in colleges to train these folks, and we don't have enough ways to get these folks into the workforce. So that's a major problem. Uh, the second major problem is just it's, it's really hard it's really hard to stay ahead of the threat when the collaboration across industries and across private and public sector isn't there like it should be. I think that will help. Uh, ultimately, if you look at things like automation, automation can help drive a lot of this. And organizations should be looking at, you know, not the challenge of adopting cloud or the challenge of not having enough personnel. It's the opportunity to really get ahead of security this time as we adopt this new third major platform, this huge transformative change into cloud and mobile and say, look, we have to, if we want to take advantage of this as a business, we have an opportunity now to have agile IT 
be protected by agile security. So security needs to be as dynamic and agile as the infrastructure is trying to protect. It needs to automate as much as possible. It needs to work closely with the business. And I think a lot of those start to address the challenge of personnel and you know, hostile threats and new technologies being adopted. Yes, no, you are absolutely right. I mean, I hear your point on uh, lack of, you know, uh, qualified resources, uh, especially for this sector, and also about the lack of integrated approach to managing the security risk. Integrate, like you say, you know, there is no collaboration across industries and you know governments and academia and everyone to be ahead in uh, united front so that you know, they can collectively identify you know risk and you know manage those security risks uh, together but that structure is not there nist has you know come up with a public private incentive plan a public a public private uh, uh, proposal of working together but that is not enough because you know there are no incentives and there is no structure Without structure, you know, it is very difficult for any entity within any industry to, even if they identify a risk, that let's say, you know, that they cannot manage on their own. And that is an interdependent risk. There is no structure by which they can, you know, uh, flag that risk or they can, you know, take it forward for, so that, you know, it is appropriately handled. That structure is not there. And we are promoting, you know, we are very heavily uh, educating P, uh, industries uh, and uh, nations about this, that, you know, there is a need for uh, integrated security-centric risk management framework that has a proper structure. So, you know, everyone can, uh, everyone has a proper structure so that they can identify risk and, you know, manage the risk that, you know, they can manage on their own independent risk. The ones that they cannot manage, the interdependent risk, there needs to be a structure so that, you know, that is... Uh, address in an effective way and the insurance industry also needs to address this you know in a collective manner that any entity that can manage the independent risk security risk that those risks should not be able to be insured because you know a lot of entities they just buy insurance policies and they think that okay we are we have done our part but if there are risks that you can manage on your own as an entity you need to manage that only the insurance policy should be available for interdependent risk, which they are not able to manage on their own. So there are a lot of you know changes yeah. that need to be there, and uh, we have to work collectively and see if we can you know bring those and force those changes so that we can manage the security risk effectively. Now, Amrit, based on your experience, do you see a need for new strategy other than what we talked about of uh, you know insurance and risk management? Uh, structure and uh, resources do you see a need for new strategy for handling the network security risk? oh absolutely and i don't think we've got a collective strategy certainly not as a nation yeah. um, i think some companies are very good at network security um, some industries are better than others um, we certainly have some very talented folks in the industry but we do not have a cohesive or collective nation strategy for how to deal with network security uh, in a way that, that protects critical infrastructure, that enables businesses to continue to profit from capitalism and this new global economy. And I, I think that's that's not something that can only be driven by the, biz, uh, the government. I think it's something the government can help enable. One of the big challenges now is there's really not a lot of incentives to be insecure except that stopping bad things from happening, right? I mean, there's possibilities for not only insurers to help drive some of this, but if you meet certain levels of security that's agreed upon at base levels, maybe there's tax incentives or other things that organizations can look at. So that they're looking at, hey, doing this is not just to protect us from bad things, doing this is also good for our business. According to what the government's asking us to do, the government isn't, isn't the one who's necessarily in the best position to define the strategy, but they certainly have an opportunity to help collaborate the strategy across critical infrastructure, private and public sector. Yes, yes, no, you're absolutely right. Now, Amrit, this time we have opened up our uh, risk roundup session to the LinkedIn audience, and I requested LinkedIn to send me questions if they have any to ask uh, you about the network security, and I got a very good response. There are a lot of questions that have come in. We won't be able to address all of them, and some of them uh, are about the social networking, which we'll have a separate session for that, so we won't address that here. But this question is from Felipe Bonomo that with the advent of big data and security analytics, the same technologies as we see today or as we know, will it perish or persist? What are your thoughts? Um, the, the type of approach 
approaches that we use today may not perish, but what will certainly happen is we'll start taking advantage of the same technologies that companies take advantage of. For example, uh, when I was with Gartner, I was responsible for the SIM Magic Quadrant, the Security Information Event Management Magic Quadrant. At the time, uh, all those technologies used traditional client, server, SQL databases. Um, but you know, fast forward almost you know eight to ten years later, and the huge volume of data that's being generated by devices that needs to be correlated is so massive that the only SIM really survive and do deep analytics or threat intelligence is to take advantage of big data technologies like Hadoop clusters or Cassandra and all these other things that we have available. So there's a whole stack of, of ways that somebody could build a, a security solution using and leveraging the, the technologies of today. Now that is different, meaning collect lots of data, try to analyze it and automate it. Um, but the but the technology infrastructure itself is changing, and that's good for for security. As I mentioned earlier, things like automating as much as possible through the DevOps cycle. Um, there's lots of automation tools out there that security folks should be using and leveraging. Right, right, right. No, that's uh, very good information. Now, this question is from uh, Ameya Sohoni. That as the internet grows up to be a big cloud, how prominent can our network be in terms of detecting and preventing APT and zero days? Also, what steps should we take to ensure our iWatch stays on top of each and every piece of the network? Well, I think, again, you know, back to some earlier comments, um, whether security folks want to or not, their companies are going to start using and leveraging cloud technologies. Uh, and it is turning into one big, giant global community. So it, it does make it in, important for organizations to look at how they segment Things. So instead of segmenting just a giant network and putting a huge fence around it, start to segment the dynamic workloads of the applications themselves. So the concept is similar, still segmentation, but instead of doing network segmentation you're now, or company segmentation, you're now doing application or workload or micro-segmentation at a very specific point. And there's a lot of automation tools that can help organizations develop those policies and have them automatically orchestrate. So if you bring up a system in Amazon or SoftLayer or Microsoft Azure and it happens to be tagged as something that sits as part of your web portal and it has these characteristics, the software will automatically secure it this way. So that you don't have to think about what should I do with this thing and it's all automated and it's on demand and it's scalable. So security people should start to expect the same benefits from the security technologies that the, the business people are expecting from IT in general. Yes, yes, no, very true, very true. Now, this question is from Abdul Jalil. That why can't we treat computers, users, and network devices and entities and apply behavior analytics so that suspicious behaviors can be detected and addressed before it becomes catastrophic? That's a good question. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of behavioral analytics. Um, the problem is behavior analytics. One is you have to have a priori knowledge of known good state. So you have to know what's good before you can detect what's anomalous. Um, that's very difficult in a large network. It's easier when you're talking about humans or you're talking about applications, but sometimes on a network that's challenging. So you have to do one of two things. You either need to be able to define it and say this is what it looks like, and very few people are good at doing that or actually know because of how massive and complex their environments are, or you have to let the thing learn. And in this learning mode, it goes through a process of spending, I don't know, 30 days trying to understand what's, what's, what's normal and then look at what deviates. Now, it holds a lot of promise. And this is something the financial uh, services companies for things like credit card fraud. For example, they know my usage patterns. So if I suddenly am in Singapore trying to buy a suit, which I have not done in the past 10 years, they'll suddenly stop the transaction and say, hey, this could be bad. Give us a call. We just want to verify it's you. So there's a challenge in response there. And I think the, um, the behavioral analytics technologies will get better, but they're not at the point that they need to be for a mature, widespread adoption. But it's definitely something that I think a lot of, um, if, if I were to guess, that whole concept of behavioral analytics, whether it's at the network level, the application level, or the user level, is going to be a really important, important component of security going forward. Yes, no, you're very true on that. It's very, very correct. And I, I believe the efforts are already underway. Uh, to understand this better so that behavior analytics can be incorporated. Now, this question is from uh, Brad Bryant. Is there an effort underway to go beyond a build guide mentality when constructing new government network systems? Is the 
standardized set of behaviors that security appliances must achieve with government architectures and why must we why must we react and not proactively use the information gathered by the litany of data analytics already present within both private and public sector business models what do you have to say to that i mean there is no integration so that last question uh, you know we can address that there is you know it's very difficult to get integrated data but what what are your thoughts on that the government has defined standards that um, solution providers must meet if they want to sell to them. Uh, these are things like common criteria, FISMA, uh, FedRAMP, as I mentioned, for cloud computing. So if, you, if you're trying to sell network security technologies to the federal government, they've already laid out what they believe you must do to, to, to meet a base level of security for their adoption. Um, and these things have everything to do with how you use or enable or adopt encryption. Um, the type of access controls, the integration with their systems, uh, the governance policies you have internally. So they look at a wide set of things to ensure that you have applied a base level of security that they're comfortable with. But um, beyond that, again, I think you know the federal government suffers from the same challenges that private sector suffers from. Too many tools, not enough people, uh, completely hostile and rapidly changing threat environment, and they're still trying to adopt new technologies just like everybody else. I mean, it's, it's now 2016, and it was 2010 when the U.S. government CIO, Vivek Kundra, said, we are now cloud forward. Every government agency must look to cloud if they want to deploy new applications. Well, we're six years into this, and that's not really happening yet. And I think, you know, they're still challenged by the same thing everyone else is challenged by. How do we do this securely? That's true. I mean, that, that itself is very complex because even if they buy the technology that, uh, that is available in the private sector, the, there also needs to be some parallel, you know, changes in the cultural changes and, you know, the resources needs to be trained and uh, the whole environment, the way the government operates or any agency operates, that needs to, you know, change. So it's a, the change management approach and process is very complex and even the, they have failed, you know, a lot of times that, you know, they have bought, bought many, you know, technologies thinking that it will bring effective change. And they have failed because it's a very complex process. Just like private industry, they have to go through many, many layers of you know effective change management. Governments also have to do that, and it's not easy. It's a very complex process. So this is the last question I will you know take from the LinkedIn. Is that uh, this is from Jason Murphy? He's he's asking that should I internet service providers block DDoS without requiring an additional charge for a scrubbing service? I think that's the first part. Could you repeat he, the question? Yeah, Mr. Jason Murphy, he wants to know that should ISPs, that is internet service providers, block DDoS, that is denial of service attack, without requiring an additional charge for a scrubbing service? <laughs> Boy, I remember having, I've, been, I've had the same argument for at least 10 years. Uh, they're the best ones in the entire food chain to block that traffic. They detect it quickly and they have the ability to turn it off. Um, whether they should be doing that for a charge or not is debatable. I think once they start doing it, if all the telcos and ISPs started to do that, it would just be adopted as part of their natural value chain um, and that the price point would go down. Um, you know, think of it like the way that uh, most of the internet providers provide free soft, uh, um, antivirus software and firewall software, whether it's Mentech, they used to charge for that. And there's no way they can charge for that now. It's just a free add-on generally. Um, and I think it's the same thing here. I do think the ISPs, the telcos, are in a great position to be blocked, to block DDoS traffic. Um, they have visibility into it. Uh, I don't know whether it makes business sense for them to charge for it ultimately, but I do think if they all started to offer those services, the price point would go down to uh, to an acceptable level that most organizations would definitely leverage that, no question. Yes, no, you are absolutely right. Now, uh, Amrit, what would you like to uh, say to the network security community about uh, you know their where their efforts should be, what they should be doing going forward in 2016 and beyond? Well, I think the biggest thing is that don't be afraid of change, that it's time to enable the business and be a business enabler. There's a lot of really fantastic technologies that can help these businesses grow, help support their bottom line, help support their natural competitive uh, drive through the economy, and that security really needs to change to support and enable that. So they shouldn't be afraid of change. 
They should adopt change and they should look for ways that they can automate as much of the infrastructure as possible. There's a lot of tools that allow them to do that. This is without a doubt one of the biggest transformational changes most IT people will see their entire career. And it really is important that security people have an opportunity to get in front of it and move from being you know, the, the, the castle of no to the agile security team that enables the business to push forward. Yes, yes, no, you're absolutely right. And those are, you know, good, uh, the, those are good thoughts and good advice to the network security community. So, Amrit, we are going to conclude our session here. Uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, sharing your thoughts and insight into the very critical area of network security risk. And uh, I, I mean, this is a very broad topic and there is so much that needs to be discussed, but uh, we are, you know, uh, we try to keep this session, you know, within an hour so that, you know, audience who is uh, our global viewers and listeners who are, you know, interested in this field, they, they have a good opportunity to understand the topic in a uh, shorter time frame. So we will have many more sessions about the network security in the coming months and uh, years. And as we do more research and as we go forward, uh, I hope that, you know, when we identify more risk that, you know, network security uh, brings to each and every nation, its industries, governments, organizations, academia, and even individuals that you would be willing to come and, you know, share your thoughts and insights into how uh, the industry should address this and how uh, we can, you know, collectively work together to, you know, secure our network. So thank you so much, uh, Amrit, for, you know, sharing your thoughts and coming on this Roundup. Thank you for your time. It was nice to talk to you. I'll talk to you soon, Jeffrey. Wonderful. So now, uh, risk group, Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Centers are created for this very purpose so that we can collectively identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing the nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. And we at risk group very firmly believe that risk management, security, and peace walk together hand in hand. So though security is related to the management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to the management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. As So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. And that is very important right now, especially when we look at the cyberspace or geospace or space. So let's manage the existing and emerging risks together for more information on the risk roundups. To watch the risk roundup videos or to hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayshree Pandya, your host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.